Well, everyone knows that one of the, the worst things you can have to endure as a teenager is being in one of those situations where your parents were right. You know what I mean? Like being in one of those situations uh, where your parents gave you some advice that you didn't take or where your parents gave you a warning that you disregarded and then you uh, found yourself needing to swallow your pride and own up to the fact that you should have listened to them. And once, when I was in high school, uh, my parents were going out for the evening. <laughs> once this, this situation was the one that happened once. I mean, this happened many times in general. But this, spe- this specific night, my parents were going out for the evening. Uh, and I was going to have some friends over. And before my parents left, my dad called me into the living room. And he said, listen, make sure that your friends are gentle when they sit on this couch. There can't be any rowdiness or house, uh, horseplay on or around this couch. Because look, and then he kind of like shoved his weight against the one arm and he said, this, this couch is about to break. It's really wobbly. And I looked at my dad and I said, dad, that couch has been wobbling for months. Like, don't be ridiculous after all this time. Why would it break tonight? I'm not going to give my, my friends a lecture about their sitting down techniques. Everything's going to be fine, right? And so my dad just kind of shook his head as he learned to do in dealing with me as a teenager. And then my parents left, and my friends came over. And you'll never guess what happened. The couch broke. My friends just, I honestly, honestly, they just sat down on the couch and both of the legs on this one side collapsed. And so this presented a very challenging dilemma for me because I wasn't very handy. None of my friends were very handy. There was no hope of us fixing the couch. But obviously there was no way that I could let my, my parents find out. Not because I was worried that I was going to get into trouble. I'm like, I'm, I'm a third child, right? If you're a parent, you know by the third one, you're tired. Right? <laughs> I wasn't worried about getting into trouble. I was worried that something worse was going to happen. I was afraid that my dad was going to find out that he was right. And so I put together two perfectly sized stacks of books and I slid them underneath the side of the couch that had broken, and then I covered them up with the skirt of the couch. And I've got to tell you, the couch looked great. Like, it had never been uh, sturdier than it was, like, standing on those stacks of books. And my parents came home, they went to bed, and they didn't even notice. It was a success. But the next day the guilt started to set in. The next day, the anxiety started to set in. The next day, I started to act weird (laughs) around my parents. You know what that's like, right? And I started uh, trying to formulate explanations in my mind that I would present to them if I got busted. Would I blame my brother? Would I plead ignorance? Would I try to convince them it had always been like that? And I was so haunted uh, by this constant sense that I was going to be found out, that I realized something for the very first time in my life. For the very first time, I realized that sometimes the cost of keeping a secret 
is higher than the cost of facing the consequences. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? Sometimes the cost of keeping a secret is higher than the cost of facing the consequences. And the broken couch was a pretty low-stakes situation, right? I fessed up. It's kind of funny and cute. I mean, once again, like third child, right? It wasn't a huge deal. <clears throat> but we've all found ourselves in situations where we've made mistakes, where we've gotten ourselves into a mess, where we've broken someone's trust, and we've been forced to decide between owning up to it and dealing with the consequences or trying to cover it up. And this morning, we are picking up in our series called Ancient Faith. And in this series, we've been looking at some of the spiritual practices that followers of Jesus have been engaging in for generations to open themselves up to God's presence and to experience his transformation. And this morning, we are talking about the practice of confession. Now, before we go any further, take a moment to just pay attention to how that word strikes you. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word confession? What kind of feelings does that bring to the surface in you? Confession isn't typically one of those spiritual practices that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, is it? It's not easy to stare our failures in the face. It's not easy to get really honest about them with God, with other people, or even with ourselves. And so it's tempting to want to tune this spiritual practice out. Or to think about how important it is for those other people in our lives, but to kind of keep some distance from it ourselves. But in scripture, confession isn't talked about as something that's meant to make us feel really bad about ourselves. It's not. In scripture, confession as is seen as the practice that opens up the door to freedom in our lives. It's seen as a practice that leads not to shame and self-loathing, but to peace and joy. We're going to look at Psalm 32 just to start off this morning. This is a psalm that was written by David. And so it says this, Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And we're looking at this passage in the NLT because it does some of the heavy lifting for us when it comes to translation. But in the NIV and the Greek word uh, that's used for what joy is the word uh, that's usually translated to blessed. It's the word for blessed. So what comes to mind for you when you think about somebody who's blessed, somebody who's living the good life? In our culture, we might think about somebody who has a lot of money or somebody who has the perfect family or somebody who's really successful as somebody who is blessed. But here, David says, the person who's blessed, 
the person who's living the good life, the person who's full of joy, isn't the person who's rich or popular or even the person who never makes a mess of their lives. And we know that David made one or two messes of his own life, right? The person who is blessed is the person who lives in complete honesty and whose sins have been forgiven by God. In verse 3, he continues. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So David reflects on how weighed down by guilt he was when he was denying his sin. It consumed him. It sucked the life out of him. But then he confessed, and he opened up his entire life before God, and he experienced this relief. He experienced forgiveness. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. And so David paints a picture of the freedom that he experienced after confessing his sins. He talks about experiencing God as his hiding place. And God surrounding him with songs of victory. And God showing him the way forward, the best path for his life. He talks about God, uh, people who trust God as being surrounded by God's unfailing love. It's as though confession recalibrates David's heart to the way of life that God has for him. To a life that's shaped by love and joy and faithfulness. He doesn't experience confession as something that drives him deeper into shame and guilt. He experiences confession as the source of his freedom. Within our culture, there are two kind of big ways that I think we tend to go off course when it comes to confession and dealing with sin. And these uh, two ways that we go off course are kind of on the opposite sides of the spectrum. And as I was thinking about this, the image that kept coming to my mind was a bowling alley. I don't know about you, uh, but, every, but when I bowl, I know that every time I send the ball down the lane, there's like approximately a 95% chance that it's going to end up in one of the gutters. 
You know, when I release it, like from my fingertips, I have no idea which gutter it might land in. But it's like the gravity of those gutters is so strong that the probability of the ball staying in the lane and knocking down any of the pins is like very low, like very, very low. And in the gutter on uh, the one side in our culture is that we live in a world where the only real sin is calling someone else's behavior a sin, right? Where there's kind of this free-for-all, anything-goes, choose-your-own-adventure approach when it comes to morals and values. And it's hard to see the significance of confessing sin if we don't really believe that sin exists, if there's no objective way to discern what's right or wrong, and if we're all just kind of doing what feels good for us. And so in our culture, talking about sin or the need to confess sin can feel irrelevant or even offensive. And the gutter on the other side is sometimes in religious contexts, we beat people down with shame over their sin. We leave out the part of the gospel that focuses on grace. We leave out the part of scripture that says that human beings are made in the image of God. And we use guilt as a tool to try to motivate people or to control their behavior. And so confession can feel like just another reminder of all of the ways that we're not measuring up. But true confession isn't about minimizing our sin or about becoming buried in guilt and shame over our sin. It's about bringing our whole lives before God and opening ourselves up to his forgiveness and the healing power of God's grace. Confession is one of those words that's become really loaded with religious meaning. But to confess actually just means to tell the truth. Right? So we can worship God by confessing who he is, by declaring his uh, character qualities. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to confess that Jesus is Lord. To confess means to tell the truth. And so to confess our sin means to tell the truth, to be honest about our sin. And in a lot of Christian settings, we've developed a really narrow view of what sin is. We think about sin in terms of our behaviors, right? Sins are those things that we do that we know we shouldn't do. But in scripture, the concept of sin is actually a whole lot bigger than that. It's more than that. At its most basic level, the word that gets translated most often to sin in scripture means to miss the mark, right? To miss the mark. It isn't actually a religious word at all. For example, in the book of Judges, uh, we read about a group of slingshot experts from the Israelite tribe of Benjamin, which is extremely cool, right? Imagine we had like a group of slingshot experts here at Evergreen. We couldn't like use it to inflict violence on anyone, but we could hit pop cans and stuff. Be really cool. So we read about this group of slingshot experts from the Israelite tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Pretty good with their slingshot, right? But that word that is translated uh, to miss is the same word that's translated to sin. Right? And so it means to miss 
the mark, to go off course, to fail at meeting a goal. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God made human beings in his own image. Right? We were designed to reflect God's goodness and love into the world. But in Genesis 3, human beings chose to redefine good and evil for themselves. They didn't trust that God had their best interest in mind. And so they disobeyed him, and sin entered the world. And ever since then, sin has impacted all of creation. Right? And we see this all around us. Things are not as they should be. Things are not as God created them to be. And so sin is more than just the bad things that we do or the good things that we should do but don't. It's all of the ways that we fail to love God and others. It's our inability to discern right from wrong and how easily uh, deceived we are to chasing after things that aren't good for us. It's that selfish drive that motivates so much of our behavior. It's our brokenness and our tendency to try to meet our own needs by our own means rather than trusting God. It's all of the ways that we miss the mark when it comes to reflecting God's image into our world. And sin is something that impacts all of us. Some of us hide our sin better than others. Some of us are more prone to the socially acceptable sins, things like pride and greed and gossip, things our culture says okay, and so it's kind of easy to shrug it off like it's not a big deal, but we all sin. Romans 3 verse 23 says, everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Right? This is our reality. But the good news is that the story doesn't end there. Paul goes on to say, Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sin. So sin is something that we all struggle with. But through Christ, Grace is something that's available to all of us. Forgiveness is something that's available to all of us. Freedom is something that's available to all of us. And confessing our sin, being honest with God and with ourselves and with others about our struggles and our failures is the way that we open ourselves up to God's healing and transformation. So what are the nuts and bolts of the practice of confession? How do we work the rhythm of confession into our lives? Often our, our ideas about confession come from the Catholic tradition, where sins are confessed to a priest and where it feels kind of structured and formal and intimidating. But confession doesn't need to look like that. It's really just a matter of creating space in our lives for reflection, having honest conversations with God about where we're struggling and where we've fallen short, and having relationships with other believers who we can trust to respond with grace and to point us towards Jesus. And there's no specific formula that we need to follow. The way we practice confession might be different depending on the kind of situation that we're in. 
But there are a few key movements that kind of guide us through any practice of confession. So the first step to confession is examination, which is really just a fancy way of saying reflection. It's stepping away from our busyness and our distractions and kind of pushing back against our natural tendency to minimize and deny and rationalize and blame others and opening ourselves up to God's presence and asking the Spirit to show us areas of our lives where we need forgiveness and healing. Richard Foster talks about this as reality therapy. Reality therapy. We're usually really good at noticing other people's weaknesses and failures, but we aren't always willing to take an honest look in the mirror. And the step of examination is what allows us to get really specific about the areas of our lives where we need God's spirit to heal us. If you go to the doctor and you say, uh, there's something wrong with me. I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I just generally don't feel good. You know, your doctor's like, is it your head? You're like, nah, it's more general than that. Is it your stomach, your leg, your foot? I don't know. I just generally don't feel good. Your doctor's really going to have a hard time identifying and treating the problem. If we want healing, if we want to get better, we need to be able to describe what's going on. It's easy to ask God uh, to forgive us for our sins in like a general sense. But, and, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that that can be good and healthy. But it's when we go deep and get really concrete that we open up those dark corners of our lives to God's healing. And so the first step is examination or sitting in God's presence and asking the spirit to shine lights on those areas of our lives that have gone off course. And the second step is confession. It's telling the truth. It's naming our sins before God and other people. 1 John uh, 1 verse, verses 8 to 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So scripture promises that when we confess our sins to God, he will forgive us. We don't need a mediator. We don't need to do something to earn our forgiveness. It was all paid for on the cross. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can trust that we have forgiveness in him and in him alone. But we were also designed for community. Right? And it's when we're willing to be honest and vulnerable with each other that we really kind of grow in our discipleship. And when uh, our sins have impacted other people, or when we're dealing with a sin that we just can't shake, or when we're feeling like we're really weighed down with guilt and shame that just won't go away, the practice of confessing to others holds an incredible amount of power. James 5.16 says, Confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. As a community of faith, we're called to be people who pray for each other, 
who extend grace to each other, who speak the truth to each other, and who build each other up. And being a community where people are safe to speak honestly about their failures, and being people who are open and honest about our own, is part of what it looks like to live that out in real life. The third step of confession is receiving God's forgiveness. And maybe that one seems like a given, but even when we know that we've been forgiven cognitively, sometimes we don't pause to let that good news sink into our hearts. Sometimes we accept forgiveness as a theological concept, but we don't let, ter- let our souls enter into the rest that comes along with that truth. When we believe that we've been forgiven, like deep in our bones, it frees us from guilt and shame. It breaks us open to extend compassion to others. And it transforms us into people whose lives are shaped by love. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has his feet anointed with oil by a woman who had a bad reputation in their community. And there's there's a Pharisee who criticizes Jesus for allowing a woman with this kind of track record to get this close to him. And this is what Jesus says in response. He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. When we truly open ourselves up to receive God's forgiveness, it changes us into people who love much and who love well. And the fourth step of confession is experiencing freedom or being transformed. Because authentic confession leads to authentic change. And that doesn't mean that we won't ever struggle again. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or that it's going to be tidy or that we won't have any setbacks. But confessing our sin and receiving God's forgiveness recalibrates us to the ways of the kingdom. It undoes the power of sin over our lives. And it frees us to be the people that God made us to be. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. In Christ, we aren't just free from sin. We're free to live what's right. And Peter goes on and says, By his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds, you are healed. Receiving forgiveness for our sin isn't just about alleviating our sense of guilt so that we feel better. It's the first step to letting God heal us and transform us from the inside out. So examination, confession, forgiveness, and freedom. Confession isn't always easy. It can feel difficult and uncomfortable, but it's an incredibly powerful practice. 
And before we wrap up this morning, we're going to look at three invitations that confession opens up to us. Three gifts that come along with the practice of confession. Firstly, confession can free us from shame and empower us to be people who are authentic and present with others. It invites us into what Brene Brown talks about as wholehearted living. One thing that the book of Genesis goes out of its way to emphasize is that before uh, people sinned, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. But as soon as they sin, as soon as their relationship with God is fractured, immediately they realize that they're naked. They feel exposed, right? They feel vulnerable. And what do they do? They hide. They hide. First, they sow fig leaves to cover themselves up. And then they hear God walking in the garden and they try to hide from him. Which, pro tip, God's not an easy person to play hide and seek with, right? And as human beings, we've been hiding ever since. We spend so much time worrying about what other people think of us and comparing ourselves to others and putting on masks to kind of cover up what's really going on in our lives. We all have this deep longing to be fully known and fully loved. And when we practice confession, what we come to discover is that we are that we are. We have a God who knows everything about us. And he loves us exactly as we are. And he meets us in our failures and walks with us one step at a time towards healing. The second thing that confession invites us into is real community and connection with others. In our culture where we're so polarized and quick to tear people down or cut them out, Confession restores our sense of commonality. It reminds us that we're all in this together, that we're all broken, that we all go through seasons where we struggle. And part of being the church means being a community where we journey together through the ups and downs, where we embrace each other when life gets messy, when we help each other, where we help each other get back on our feet when we fall down, where we cheer each other on as we heal and recover and find our way forward on the path that God has uh, mapped out for us. Confession calls us into vulnerability and humility and compassion, and those are three of the key ingredients to a healthy community. And lastly, confession transforms us into people and communities that reflect God's kingdom in our broken world. It doesn't take much scrolling through the news headlines to realize that we're living in a messy world. Am I right? And it can be tempting for us to get sucked in to the controversies or to spend hours just doom scrolling online until we're completely overwhelmed or filled with fear and outrage. But here's the thing, and this is a letdown, I know. Doom scrolling doesn't have the power to change the world. Getting sucked into controversies on the internet will never change the world. 
fear and outrage will never change the world. God's kingdom breaks into this world when his people surrender their lives to him. God's kingdom breaks into this world when God's people are willing to look in the mirror and get really honest about their own weaknesses and failures and turn to him for healing. God's kingdom breaks into this world when his people open themselves up to his forgiveness and experience his transformation. God's kingdom breaks into this world when his people experience the freedom and joy that come along with experiencing God's grace. And God's kingdom breaks into this world when his people are filled with his perfect love. And then that love flows through them to others. And in our world where we're so quick to call out the faults of other people, I really believe that one of the key ways that the church is called to be a countercultural witness to the kingdom of God is by instead being people who are willing to name our own faults and to approach one another with the same grace and unconditional love that Christ extends to us every moment of every day. Again and again in scripture, Jesus meets people in the areas of their lives that bring them the most shame. And those are the exact places that he heals them with his love. John 4, he meets a woman at a well who tries to sidestep a conversation about her messy past about the five husbands that she's been through and the man she's living with, who she's not married to at all. But Jesus names those things that she's been trying to hide. And then he offers her living water. And she runs back to her village ecstatic and tells everyone that she's met the Messiah and that he knows everything there is to know about her. In John 8, a woman's brought before Jesus after being caught in adultery. And the religious leaders point out that the law says she should be stoned to death. And they ask Jesus what he thinks that they should do with her. And rather than responding to their question, Jesus bends down. He starts to draw in the sand. And then he says, let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. And one by one, they walk away. And Jesus has the woman look around and notice that no one's there left to condemn her. And then he says, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In John 21, we find Jesus and Peter on the beach after uh, eating breakfast together with their friends after Jesus' resurrection. And we can be sure that Peter's feeling all kinds of shame because he's just denied Jesus three times after passionately declaring that he'd be willing to give up his life for Jesus. This was his biggest failure and something that he would rather forget. But Jesus pulls him aside and three times, once for every denial, Jesus asks Peter to affirm his love for him. He meets Peter in that place of shame. And he restores him to his true identity. He restores him back to ministry. 
the areas of our lives that we most want to hide, the areas of our lives that bring us most shame, the areas of our lives where we've experienced the biggest failures and the biggest struggles are the exact areas of our lives that Jesus wants to heal with his love and his forgiveness. Confession is the practice that helps us to open ourselves up before God so that we can experience his grace and live in the freedom and the joy that come with being fully known and fully loved. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a few moments to just kind of walk through this practice of confession here this morning to reflect. And so I'll invite the worship team uh, to come on up to the front. Um, First, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you um, that your word declares that each one of us was made in your image, that we're good, that we are loved, and we stand before you as people who recognize that something's gone wrong, that we sin, that we're broken, and who feel the guilt and the shame that come along with that. God, some of us here this morning, I'm sure, walk through the doors just bound up in guilt and shame. But we thank you for the good news that we have through your son. God, that in Christ, we have been forgiven, truly forgiven, and we've been set free. And I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to really lean into this practice of confession, which is really just honesty, being honest with you and being honest with each other, so that we can come to know deep in our bones that it's true, that it's really true that we are forgiven, that we are fully known and we are fully loved, and that we have freedom in your name. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to just take a moment to to center yourself in God's presence. We're going to walk through just a process of confession here this morning, and then we're going to share in communion together. So the first uh, step of confession is examination. And when um, Adam and Eve were hiding from God in the garden, God approached them and he asked them a question. It was a question that God knew the answer to, but that he wanted Adam and Eve to kind of reflect on themselves. He said, where are you? Where are you? What's happened? Where are you in relation to me? So this morning, I want you to reflect on that question. Where are you? Where in your life have you been pulled off course from the life that God has for you? What area of your life have you been struggling with sin, struggling to trust God, or experiencing guilt and shame? Just take a moment to ask the Spirit uh, to lead you in that process of examination. now I'm going to invite you to just name those sins before God, to tell the truth, to take off the mask, to experience the freedom that comes when we're just our authentic selves. Let's take a moment to confess to God 
Maybe you need to talk to somebody later today and you can kind of come back to that and make a note of it. But for now, just take a moment to confess your sins before God. I'm going to invite you to just open yourself up to receive God's forgiveness. To let God's forgiveness, the truth that you have been forgiven, sink into your bones. And I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 103. And as I do, I just want you to invite these uh, words. I just invite you to let these words just wash over you, to just sink deeply into your soul. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the truth. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And the final step of confession is freedom. It's freedom. It's stepping into the change, the transformation that God has for us. So I'm just going to invite you to take a moment to, to ask God how he's calling you to move forward. What's your next step on the pathway towards healing? How's God calling you to move into tomorrow? thank you that um, there's nothing we can do to make you love us anymore. There's nothing we can do to make you love us any less. We thank you that you love us exactly as we are. You accept us exactly as we are, um, but you love us too much to lead us, leave us there. And that step by step, you walk us into healing and transformation and a new life. God, may we be people who live into that. In your name we pray.